2: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent oh, say, 25 years, being really distracted, overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get. Folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Persia. Hello everybody, and welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 16, Pharaoh Cambyses. I should also say welcome back to a consistent flow of narrative episodes. I know there are some listeners who prefer storytelling to cultural analysis, so good news, that's more or less what we're looking at for the foreseeable future. If you prefer more analytical episodes on culture and art and systems, then don't worry, when we emerge from this next chaotic phase of Persian history, Darius will be king, and I'll have to re-explain a lot of the stuff that I've already covered under New Systems. Before getting into this episode, I just want to note a few things. First of all, thank you to anyone who has provided feedback in the last couple of weeks. I'm doing what I can to make note of the things like my own presentation style and pronunciations of ancient words. I've also been corrected on a few things that I'll try and be aware of going forward. But the biggest thing that I should let everyone know about is a correction from episode 12, Iranian Religion. In that episode, I described the Rig Veda as being written down in India around 1000 BC. This is just totally wrong and the result of me misunderstanding one of my books. There are no written records from India until around the 3rd century BC. The Vedas were compiled into a single collection of oral records just around 1000. On a less severe but related error. In the same episode, I briefly said that the Yashts were written at a different time from the Gathas. They were compiled at a different time, but once again, these were oral traditions until the Achaemenid period at the absolute earliest, and even then we don't have any good evidence for it. My big takeaway is that it's hard for literate people to talk about recording ideas in terms that don't talk about writing. But I'll make a point to try and avoid it going forward. Two episodes back introduced us to the politics of the royal family in the aftermath of Cyrus the Great's death. In 530 BCE, the Persian throne and titles of the great king were passed to Cambyses. Technically, Cambyses II, if you include Cyrus's father in the same line of Persian kings. The last episode explained the Persian army as it functioned in the Achaemenid period, from its origins as Cyrus's own levied troops from Anshan around 550 BCE, to Cambyses' calling for a navy in the early 520s. That left our narrative on the precipice of Cambyses' invasion of Egypt. And I guess if we're going to invade Egypt, and have any hope of following the events in the run-up to that invasion, then we should probably know a bit about Egypt. Or more accurately, we should know a bit about Egypt as it stood in the late 6th century BCE. Pretty much everybody knows something about ancient Egypt, But for most people, that something was probably already ancient history by the time of Cambyses. To give you some perspective, the Great Pyramid of Giza was constructed during the Egyptian Old Kingdom, about 2,000 years before Cambyses, that being about 4,500 years before today. The height of the Egyptian Middle Kingdom under the 12th dynasty of pharaohs was about 1,300 years before Cambyses, or about 3,800 years before today. The new kingdom reached its height under Ramses the Great almost 700 years before Cyrus the Great built his empire, or about 3,100 years ago. We should also be on the same page about what I mean when I'm talking about kingdoms and dynasties and periods in Egyptian history, because they'll keep coming up even after the Persians take over. Egyptologists traditionally break Egyptian recorded history into eight sections before the conquests of Alexander in the 4th century BCE. It begins with the murky history of the early dynastic period, sometime in the late 32nd century BCE. After that, it alternates between old, middle, and new kingdoms, and the first, second, and third intermediate periods. Kingdoms are the times when Egypt was mostly unified, usually under native Egyptian pharaohs, and the intermediate periods represent times when rule of the whole kingdom was disputed, or it was occupied by foreign rulers. Again, this is just very generally speaking. The final period, which includes Persian rule, is called the Late Period. In Egyptology, dynasties are loosely defined streaks of related rulers. Usually father to son, sometimes husband to wife to son, and other times unrelated man marries a royal woman and the dynasty continues. Some ruled the whole kingdom, some only part, and some of them existed simultaneously. Why in the world would a modern researcher use that definition of dynasty? Well, they wouldn't if it hadn't been devised thousands of years earlier. The dynasty system was created by a priest called Menetho in the 3rd century BCE, and it's just sort of stuck as a way of dating Egyptian history. Obviously, I don't have time to go into the whole 3,000-year history of ancient Egypt today, But if you are interested, go check out Dominic Perry's History of Egypt podcast, which is endeavoring to cover the whole of Egyptian history up to at least its occupation by the Roman Empire. One last quirk about Egypt is the two lands. Occasionally you might hear Egypt called the Kingdom of the Two Lands. This is in reference to the traditional division of Upper and Lower Egypt. For most recorded history, the two regions were united as a single kingdom, but occasionally there were divisions between the two, with one dynasty ruling the south and the other in the north. The thing is, upper and lower are switched from how most of us would probably label them on a map. Upper Egypt is in the south, and lower Egypt is the north. That's because the Nile River, which formed the heart of Egyptian society for millennia, flows south to north, and so the southern part of the country is upstream and thus upper Egypt. Egypt is basically two huge swaths of desert on either side of the Nile River, which has its ultimate origins in the Blue and White Nile Rivers, which themselves can be traced to modern Ethiopia and Uganda. However, the ancient Egyptians did not know where their river started. Their knowledge generally extended as far south as the sixth cataract of the Nile, and their power regularly reached the first or second cataract. Cataracts are sections of shallow rapids, with the first appearing around Aswan, just north of what is now Lake Nasser. In the north, they controlled the Sinai Peninsula and a swath of Mediterranean coastline, but the greatest feature of northern Egypt was the fertile land around the Nile Delta, that triangular area where the Nile branches out into many smaller channels as it enters the Mediterranean. The Delta was, without a doubt, the greatest concentration of people, towns, and cities in the kingdom. So now you have a basic idea of ancient Egypt, and we can get into some history. The transition from New Kingdom through the Third Intermediate Period and into the Late Period actually began as part of events we've discussed in the earliest episodes of this podcast. I started episode one by discussing the general societal collapse at the end of the Bronze Age. Part of that was the end of the Egyptian New Kingdom, with the demise of the 20th dynasty. The third intermediate period is characterized by Egyptian infighting, and then by Nubian invasions from the south, and then the eventual Nubian conquest of Egypt. The 25th dynasty of Egypt was, in reality, the Kushite Nubian Empire ruling Egypt as part of their kingdom. That ended, as discussed way back in episode 1, when the Assyrians invaded Egypt and pushed the Nubians out of Lower Egypt in 671 BCE. A year earlier, on the Nile Delta in the city of Sais, a nobleman had taken control of the city and declared himself pharaoh under the throne name Necho, claiming legitimacy from his distant relationship to the 24th dynasty. The Assyrians installed Necho I as their vassal ruler in Egypt, though they did not fully liberate Upper Egypt at that time. The reign of Pharaoh Necho I marks the end of the Third Intermediate Period, and in addition to being an Assyrian vassal, Necho cultivated an independent alliance with the young Lydian kingdom in Anatolia. Necho's son, Samtik I, took power on his father's death, reconquered the rest of Upper Egypt, and declared Egypt to be independent from the Assyrian Empire, founding the 26th dynasty, also called the Saite dynasty, after their capital city. Despite that, Egypt remained on good terms with the Assyrians. And that's where we left Egypt in episode 1. But in episode 3, the Egyptians returned to the narrative because Psamtik's son, Necho II, attempted to defend the Assyrian rump state as it was pursued westward by the growing Babylonian and Median empires in two campaigns. Obviously, he was unsuccessful, and Egypt was pushed out of the Near East, with their power limited to their border with Babylon— on the Sinai Peninsula. That was the political situation on the western frontier inherited by Cyrus the Great when he conquered Babylon. However, during the period of Babylonian ascendancy, Egypt was not idle. Necho II's son was Samtik II, who launched a massive campaign into Cush, the Nubian kingdom that had conquered Egypt before the Assyrian invasion. Egypt did not completely conquer Nubia in this campaign, but the power of Cush was crushed. Samtik II was also the pharaoh described in the Bible as offering aid to Judah in its first failed revolt against Babylon in 591 BC. Samtik's son was Apries, who briefly continued his father's policy of supporting revolt in Babylonian-held Judah, even sending an army to assist the Judahites only to call his soldiers back at the last minute and allow Babylon to besiege Jerusalem and exile its inhabitants in 588 B.C. These events were also described in episode 3. Perhaps this sudden shift in policy was due to a Greek army landing on the coast of Egyptian-held Libya. The battle in Libya was disastrous for the Egyptians and led his remaining soldiers to rebel against Pharaoh Aprias and install a popular general as the new king. When Aprias tried to retake his throne with a Babylonian army at his back, he was killed in battle in 570. That mutinous general became Pharaoh Amos II, the first Amos having lived about a thousand years earlier. Amos has been the pharaoh on the periphery of our narrative since the beginning of Cyrus's conquests. When Croesus called on Egypt to aid Lydia in their fight against the Persians, it was Amos who received his letters. If Cyrus had any diplomatic correspondence with his Egyptian counterpart, it would have been Amos. And it was Amos that Herodotus blames for the origins of the Persian-Egyptian conflict. Or at least, he's who takes the blame in Herodotus' preferred version of the story. As it happens, history's first historian offers several versions of events. I know, multiple versions of events on the history of Persia. Who'd have known? The thing is, every version Herodotus gives us reads like most of the historical figures are really petty teenagers. And in one case, that might just be because they are. One version which Herodotus claims to have heard from an Egyptian says that Cambyses was not actually the son of the Persian noblewoman Mandane at all, and that he was, in fact, the son of Cyrus and Nitetus, a daughter of the deposed pharaoh Apries, who had been married to Cyrus. Herodotus dismisses this version outright. He very well might have heard this story when he visited Egypt, but if he did, it was probably fabricated after Cambyses' lifetime to bolster Persian legitimacy in the satrapy of Egypt. If the great king was actually the legitimate descendant of a previous pharaoh, that would have made Cambyses a legitimate heir to the throne, which he obviously was not, but it would have justified his conquest of Egypt from Amos. Herodotus tells a second story, which he says that he did not personally believe, and that says that Cambyses was indeed the son of Cassandinae, but Cassandinae fell out of favor with Cyrus the Great, and Nitetus of Egypt became Cyrus's favorite wife. As a child, Cambyses swore vengeance on behalf of his mother against the Egyptians. This story fits in well with some of the more damning stories about Cambyses that developed after his death, and it still doesn't square with everything else we know about Persia under Cyrus, though admittedly most of that information also comes from Herodotus. The version that Herodotus settled on as the quote-unquote true version of events is no less motivated by a personal vendetta, But in true Herodotus fashion, it makes the losing kings of the 26th dynasty into the bad guys who get their just comeuppance. The story once again begins with Cyrus, but rather than getting a wife from Egypt, he gets a doctor. Specifically an eye doctor. I guess the king of kings was having some trouble seeing as he got older. Pharaoh Amos used this as an opportunity to appoint a troublesome physician from his court to go to Persia as a sort of forced exile. The man's name was not mentioned by Herodotus. While in Persia, this physician made a point to become friends with crown prince Cambyses, and when he became king, the physician encouraged Cambyses to try and arrange a diplomatic marriage with one of the pharaoh's daughters. Cambyses, already thinking of adding Egypt to his territory, sent a letter to pharaoh Amos asking for just that. This would have, in theory formed an alliance between the two kingdoms, and staved off any military invasion. Amos, though, as Herodotus tells it, could not bear to part with any of his daughters, but he still feared the wrath of the much larger Persian Empire. So he attempted to deceive Cambyses. In place of one of his own daughters, he sent Nitetus, once again a daughter of Apriace in this story. Rather than marrying Cyrus this time, she was sent to marry Cambyses, The problem was, she had barely arrived at the palace to meet her husband-to-be when she spilled the beans. Nitetus immediately explained the whole situation, and Cambyses was furious with the pharaoh for this ruse. And so Cambyses decided to march on Egypt, and that physician, who Herodotus never mentions again, gets his revenge, presumably. Do I buy any of those stories as a historian? Not for a second. It's plausible that one of the latter scenarios with Nitetus could have some truth to it, but she's probably not the reason Persia went to war. And speaking of Nitetus, those of you who use the family tree on the website will notice that she's on there despite never actually marrying Cambyses in Herodotus' history. Here's my logic. Herodotus reports three versions of events where Nitetus, the daughter of Epries, marries a Persian king, and Cambyses probably married an Egyptian princess or noblewoman after taking Egypt to give himself some semblance of legitimacy. I followed Wikipedia's bizarre lead on this one, and connected her to Cambyses on the chart with a question mark next to her name. The important detail is that the Persian royal family found a way to tie themselves into the 26th dynasty of pharaohs, and they are now all represented on the chart. Theseus tells a similar but shorter and raunchier version of the story, in which Cambyses isn't egged on by his father's doctor, but instead discovers that Egyptian women are supposedly better in bed than Persian women, and sends the same letter to Amos. In this case, Amos sends Natetus because he thinks Cambyses will only take his daughter as a concubine rather than a full wife. Personally, I find this one mildly more believable than the deception story, but still don't buy it as an actual reason for the war. So if Herodotus's soap opera and Theseus' X parody versions of events aren't the whole story of Persia invading Egypt, what were Cambyses' real motivations? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying this, it was Egypt. Seriously, just about everything about Egypt made it an ideal territory to add to any empire and many future empires would take the two lands for themselves, and then guard them jealously. It was perfectly located on trade routes, both through the Mediterranean Sea, connecting them to all the Greek cities, dotting the coastline from Spain to Anatolia, as well as Phoenician colonies like Carthage, and trade routes through Africa from oases in the northeast Sahara, and trade up from Nubia and the tribes further south along the Nile River. Additionally, the floodplains around the Nile provided some of the most fertile farmland in the Persians' known world. These two factors allowed Egypt to become populous and wealthy, both of which made it attractive to an expansionist empire with wars to finance and supply. And finally, Egypt held the prestige of millennia. Their history was already 2,500 years long when Cambyses set his sights on the Nile, and much like Cyrus claiming the ancient moniker, King of Sumer and Akkad, Cambyses wanted to become the lord of Upper and Lower Egypt. However, there is another, more G ge- I I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors. And Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Despite the grander size and scale of the Persian Empire, Egypt was a threat to their eastern territory. Egyptian territory had once extended into the Levant during the New Kingdom, and when they didn't control the region, a key element of Egyptian foreign policy was to undermine whichever empire did. That was true of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persians. To this end, Pharaoh Amos managed to occupy Cyprus— which sat in a threatening position off the coast of Anatolia and Phoenicia. It's also been suggested that he may have financially supported the last holdouts and rebellions against the Persians in Ionia and Phoenicia along the Mediterranean coast. He also formed an alliance with Polycrates, the tyrant of the Greek island called Samos, located just off of Anatolia. Like, if you look at it on a map, it looks like they're touching. In ancient Greece, tyrant did not mean a cruel or bad leader, It just meant someone who seized sole autocratic power over a city-state outside of the legitimate political system. Quite often, they had general popular support. Other times, like in Polycrates' case, they had the support of military forces on their side. Polycrates' story and its intersection with Persia is interesting in its own right, and it will be dealt with in its own episode. For now, though, just know that Polycrates built an impressive name for Samos, and was able to threaten many other islands in the Aegean Sea into following his lead, achieving a powerful naval hegemony in the region. He may even have raided into Persian territory to win over islands previously led by cities in Ionia. The Egyptian-Samian alliance and their ability to threaten Persia's western borders constituted Cambyses' first real military challenge, and a military challenge we know almost nothing about. Any resistance in mainland Phoenicia and Anatolia, must have been put down either late in Cyrus's reign or early in Cambyses, because they had time to construct a navy on Cambyses' orders in preparation for the Egyptian campaign. This navy was used to establish Persian control over the many islands that sat off the coast and had thus far remained independent, except for Samos and its allies. They were allowed to remain independent because Polycrates recognized the change in the wind and abandon his alliance with Egypt in favor of a new arrangement with Persia. Why the tyrant decided to switch teams is unknown. Perhaps he was offered a position as a new client king or satrap over a theoretical province comprised of all the islands in the Aegean. Whether that was true or not, he almost certainly felt threatened by the sudden appearance of a much larger fleet than his own. All the resources and manpower of the Persian Empire were able to rapidly construct a fleet that dwarfed the size of any single Greek navy, even one as powerful as Samos. Polycrates subsequently sent his ships with the Persians. Cyprus was also taken during this time, in what might have been Persia's first amphibious invasion, or at least the first large one. We know basically nothing about this attack, but the local Cypriot kings were allowed to remain in control as a tribute-paying vassals of the Persian Empire. That attack may have been before or concurrent with the massive land invasion that Cambyses was assembling in Palestine, specifically on the plains outside of Acre, at the time considered a Phoenician city. A Persian camp was identified by archaeologists in this region just last year, which they think might have been the staging ground for Cambyses' invasion. A link to an article will be in the episode description. And unfortunately for Egypt, Polycrates was not the only Greek to defect around this time. In 526 BCE, Herodotus tells us that Phanes of Halicarnassus, leader of a large contingent of Greek mercenaries, had a dispute with the pharaoh. Phanes took his men and left Egypt to sell their services to Cambyses and act as an informant. Whether through Phanes or other means, Cambyses likely learned that Pharaoh Amos was old and ailing, and according to Herodotus, increasingly unpopular with his own people. The final piece of the puzzle fell into place when Cambyses was able to establish an alliance with an Arab king who could provide the Persian army with guides and camels and water for the long trek across the Sinai Peninsula. And so, by the end of 526, Cambyses was ready to invade. Then, like some sort of bizarre gift to the Persians, Pharaoh almost died. He was succeeded by his son, who took the throne name Samtik Third and it was this third Samtik who would face the Persians. In 525 BCE, a Persian army comprised of soldiers, support, and camp followers from around the empire, a force of Greek mercenaries and their Arab guides reached the easternmost branch of the Nile Delta, where they found the city of Pelusium and an Egyptian army guarding it, comprised of native Egyptians and a small cohort of remaining Greek mercenaries. Herodotus then gives us almost no information about the battle, aside from telling us that it was a disaster for the Egyptians and Samtik and his army beat a hasty retreat to their capital in Memphis, just south of the Nile Delta. And like previous campaigns, I'll put a map of these locations up on the website. The so-called Father of History is much more concerned with a story about the Greek mercenaries on the Egyptian side kidnapping the family that Phanes had left in Egypt and drinking their blood— which is horrifying and also useless to a modern historian. The later Hellenistic author Polyanus reports a different version of the Battle of Pelusium, in which Cambyses is forced to besiege the city, but unable to deploy siege engines against the barricades set up by the Egyptians. He was then forced to wait until naval support was able to come down the river. This is similar enough to the next battle to be suspicious, but the grand takeaway is that Pelusium was still a decisive victory for the Persians. Polyanus also provides a version of events that was already considered legend in the 2nd century BC. This is the story of Cambyses ordering his army to attach cats to their shield or carry them because the Egyptians held cats to be sacred and would refuse to fire arrows at the Persians. Like I said, it was already considered a legend back then and probably has to do with stories of Cambyses mocking Egyptian religion but it does make for some really ridiculous artwork. From Pelusium, Cambyses and his army followed the pharaoh south to Memphis, where they were forced to besiege the city, and were consistently repelled by an impressive fortification called the White Wall. Herodotus, unfortunately, doesn't tell us a lot about that wall, other than that it could not be taken without naval support on the Nile River. Before too long, though, Persian ships sailed up the Nile and breached the White Wall. Memphis was taken, and Pharaoh Samtic III was captured after only six months on the throne. Herodotus then paints a conflicting picture of Cambyses, but also one that retraces a more morbid version of the events following Cyrus's conquest of Lydia and capture of Croesus. Samtic was made to watch as a procession of Egyptian notables, led by his own son, were brought out with a horse's bit in their mouths and ropes around their necks to be executed. The defeated pharaoh was so caught up in his own misery that he did not cry out in anguish until he saw a close personal friend being led away. When questioned about not crying earlier, Cambyses was actually moved by Samtick's response and ordered that the prisoners not be executed, much like Cyrus and the execution of Croesus. Unlike Croesus, though, Samtick's son was said to have already been cut down when the order was given. Herodotus also tells us that Cambyses attempted to follow his father's generous footsteps and offered Samtik a comfortable exile in Persia that would begin when the former pharaoh traveled east with the king of kings, only after everything was settled in Egypt. After Memphis, Cambyses went northwest to Saïs, the ancestral capital of the Saite pharaohs he had just conquered. There he participated in all of the requisite Egyptian religious rites to be invested as the new pharaoh, the first of the 27th dynasty. In another stark contrast, Herodotus also says that he had Pharaoh Amos's mummy exhumed, mutilated, and burned as vengeance for his earlier betrayal. There's really no evidence for or against this outside of Herodotus, but it is another story that fits in with a whole litany of stories about Cambyses' disgracing Egyptian beliefs, which I keep mentioning, but won't discuss just yet. Regardless of any upheaval immediately following the initial conquest, the Egyptian written and archaeological record shows very little disturbance after 525. Religious rites were carried on up and down the Nile as usual, and Cambyses assumed all of the titles and roles of the pharaoh, descendant of the gods Re, Horus, and Osiris, with the Egyptian name Masuti Rei as his pharaonic throne name. In all of this, the Egyptian navy is never mentioned. After all the hype and buildup around Cambyses' navy and naval alliances, we never hear about it actually being deployed against Egypt. Surely ships were used to carry supplies, and maybe its primary military use was actually to help take Cyprus, but it still seems kind of surprising that we hear nothing about a naval battle, given how integral the Persian navy was supposed to be. One explanation might be found in Cambyses' new favorite advisor in Egypt, a local notable and physician who might have been the inspiration for the physician in Herodotus' earlier story, called, and Ra forgive me here, Wedja Horeznet, who also happened to have been Pharaoh Amos's chief admiral. So we have the former Egyptian admiral of the fleet acting as Cambyses' new best friend, and Theseus explicitly calls Wedja Horeznet a traitor. So it seems that Egypt suffered a third betrayal in all of this, and Samtek III was actually betrayed by his own navy as well. wedja then guided Cambyses in his duties as pharaoh, advising him on how to portray himself as a proper Egyptian king, what ceremonies to attend, what religious duties to perform, which temples and schools to fund, and what to do with his troops that would not upset his new subjects. One key example of this was telling Cambyses to move his garrison out of Sais to avoid desecrating the many sanctuaries and temples in the city. To the west, according to Herodotus, the people and cities of Libya willingly sent tribute to the Persians and joined the Persian Empire of their own accord. Herodotus says this extended all the way to the Greek city-state of Cyrene, but many historians don't place that fully within the empire until the reign of Darius leaving Cyrenaica's status under Cambyses kind of unclear. What is clear is that sometime within the tumultuous next 20 years, Cyrene and the surrounding area fell under Persian control. Herodotus reports several additional campaigns, all of which modern historians call into question for one reason or another. Some are dismissed outright, like a plan to attack Carthage that was never carried out. Carthage was a popular target for campaigns that never were with ancient Greek authors, partly because of its significance and wealth, and partly because of its regular conflicts with Greek cities in Italy. Herodotus also describes two failed military campaigns that make just a little bit more sense and probably weren't the spectacular failures he makes them out to be. The first was to secure the Oracle of Amun, an important Egyptian temple in the Siwa Oasis, which was about 800 kilometers or 500 miles west of Memphis, or about half of that south from the Mediterranean coast. Neither journey, traveling hundreds of miles through the desert, with an army would be easy or pleasant, and Herodotus says that the whole army Cambyses sent off to Siwa was lost in the desert, never to return. The issue is, despite centuries of looking for archaeological proof of a lost army, none has ever been found, and the Oracle of Amun remained in contact with Cyrene and Egypt throughout the Persian period. Many historians pass this story off as Herodotus trying to mirror Cambyses' expedition away from the Nile with Darius' later expedition away from the Danube in Eastern Europe. The second failed campaign has more of a plausible explanation. Herodotus describes it as a disastrous attempt to conquer the Ethiopians, which probably requires some explaining on its own, Because we haven't mentioned Ethiopia at all yet, and it seems really sudden to march thousands of miles to a place that most of the ancient European and Near Eastern kingdoms didn't really understand. Most of this confusion is because we're not actually talking about Ethiopia, the country in the Horn of Africa. We're talking about Nubia, the kingdom immediately south of Egypt in modern Sudan. The confusion comes from how the words Ethiopia and Ethiopian have evolved since ancient Greece. Today we associate it with the specific country that can trace its roots back to the Aksumite kingdom of the first century CE. In ancient Greece, Ethiopian was their word for black-skinned African people, and basically all of Africa was considered Ethiopia. Nubia is a name Westerners have used for whatever people sat south of Egypt since about the fourth century CE, and Kush refers specifically to the Nubian kingdom that has been contemporary with our narrative up to this point. I hope that clarifies some of the more confusing terminology that you might encounter if you choose to read about this elsewhere. For centuries, it had been a mark of Egyptian kingship for Pharaoh to lead at least a token campaign south of the first cataract. Given wedge other advice, it's reasonable to think that this is the sort of campaign that Herodotus was trying to describe. So when Cambyses marched south with his army, they first would have secured Thebes, the ancient capital in Upper Egypt, and then continued south, pushing beyond the Saite border at the first cataract of the Nile and into Nubian territory. Herodotus makes this out to be a full invasion, trying to conquer all of Nubia, and disastrous for the Persians. He also says that the youngest of Cambyses' sister-wives, Roxane, accompanied him on the expedition and died of a miscarriage, and that the Nubians not only repelled the Persians, but slaughtered them. The thing is, that doesn't really square with reality. I guess Roxane's death mostly does, because taking a pregnant woman on a long military march through the desert seems like a plausible route to complications and miscarriage, even if Herodotus' moralizing criticisms of Cambyses in the story don't make a ton of sense. But the Persian defeat in Nubia doesn't really work out with the other evidence. First of all, it would have been a baffling choice to mount another full invasion with Egypt so recently subjugated. But for a kingdom that so easily defeated the Persian army, the Nubians were really quick to start paying tribute. In another passage, Herodotus reports that Ethiopia was a tribute-paying province or vassal of the Persians after Cambyses' conquest of Egypt. The version of events that most modern historians have decided on based on all of this is one where Cambyses marched south, probably to about the second cataract of the Nile, and made northern Nubia into a sort of tribute-paying buffer zone under Persian influence, if not an outright satrapy. The idea of a massive loss for the Persians is chalked up to a consistent string of later stories invented or altered to make Cambyses look reckless and unstable. The Nubian campaign would probably have been around 524 BC, because in 523 Cambyses had to deal with a new problem, Back up in Thebes or Sais, wherever he was being held waiting for his exile, the deposed Samtik III had plotted an insurrection. When his plot was discovered, Cambyses had Samtik put to death as a traitor, but some resistance to Persian control did rise up, and it was crushed severely. There's not much conclusive evidence for Persian brutality or the 523 revolt in general, but later stories attributed the destruction of several temples around Thebes to Cambyses' wrath. Afterward, he ordered that taxes on the general population be decreased, and that temples produce more of their own supplies and revenues instead of receiving that support from taxation. Perhaps this was a way to ingratiate himself with the majority of Egyptians, or to organize Egyptian temples in a way similar to the Mesopotamian system that he was already familiar with. Whatever the case, once this revolt was put down and Samtik was dead, the king of kings and pharaoh of Egypt decided that it was time to leave the new province in the hands of his subordinates, and so Cambyses, wedge and the Persian army set back out across the Sinai Peninsula sometime in 523 or early 522 BCE. And with that, I think it is time to bring this episode of the History of Persia to a close. Those of you familiar with the stories of Cambyses in Egypt might notice that this was a very charitable account of events. That's entirely on purpose, and I'll be exploring all the worst aspects of Cambyses' history in the next episode. Until then, you can find more information, the relevant maps, the Achaemenid family tree, including the 26th dynasty of Egypt, and other resources on the podcast website, historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com. If you want to provide feedback or advice, or even just to say hi, you can contact me on that website or send an email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook under the History of Persia Podcast, on Instagram as History of Persia Podcast, and Twitter at History of Persia. To support the show, share episodes with your friends on any of those platforms or even in real life, and leave reviews on whatever podcast service it is you use to listen. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Hey everybody, you may have recently started hearing a little blurb about Hopful Media at the start of each episode, before the ads. There's a full announcement just after episode 83, but I wanted to slip this message into the backlog so you'd know what was going on. Absolutely nothing of substance has changed, and history of Persia is just as independent as ever the hop in hopful is literally my acronym for history of persia this is just a little bit of behind the scenes stuff for building a brand to cover potential future projects if and when that happens you'll hear about it in this feed first thanks for listening
1: support for this podcast and the following message come from coriant